0: you're listening to the technology for mindfulness podcast episode 56 hosted by me robert plotkin today i'm going to be speaking with taru Clavel, author speaker and super global mom Teru is passionate about world-class education for kids and how technology is used in various societies and cultures you can find out more about taru's work and upcoming book at TaruClavel.com. That's T-E-R-U-C-L-A-V-E-L.com. I'm extremely pleased to welcome Taru Clavel to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In every episode of this podcast, I like to share a tip for how to be more focused and productive, less stressed out generally when using technology. And for today's tip, what I'd like to suggest is keeping your work and personal or maybe school lives separate from each other technologically using different accounts. Now, I'm sure all of you have lots of different accounts. Maybe you've got multiple email addresses and email accounts, or who knows, maybe you've got multiple social media accounts. But the question is, do you actually use those different accounts for separate purposes. Do you only use your work email address for work communications and your personal email address for personal emails? Probably not. I don't do it as well as I should, but I try my best, and that's my suggestion for today. To really be mindful about paying attention to which accounts you use for each purpose. Why? Many benefits to this. One is, let's say, you're working or you're at school and you want to try to be better at maintaining a separation between your work day, your school day, and your non-work or non-school day, or just your non-work time, and to not have your personal time be invaded by work-related things like messages. Well, if you have separate accounts for those different spheres of your life and you stick really rigorously to using each account only for its own purpose. It can really help you to keep those different parts of your life separate and to not have the stresses and anxieties or just interruptions of one part of your life invade the other. Now, let me give another suggestion, which may sound crazy. It is a bit more radical, and it's not something I suggest that you necessarily do all the time, but it's an option, which is to have separate devices for the different parts of your life. I have a laptop that only has my personal email account set up on it. doesn't have my work email account. doesn't have my work passwords saved on it. I don't use that all the time for personal stuff, but there are times when I want to be really sure that I don't cave into the temptation. I'll just check a work email. Well, I use that laptop because I know not that it's impossible to do work stuff on that laptop, but it's much harder. It takes a lot more effort because all of my work accounts and software aren't just set up there, easy to use at a moment's notice. So I hope you find this helpful. I think these days, many of us find that all the different realms of our life can easily bleed together. And although there can be something nice about that sometimes, if we want to stay focused and fully present in whatever we're doing, whoever we're with at the moment, it can be really helpful to use some technology to keep uh, our other aspects of our technological lives out of sight, and out of mind when we don't want them. Hope you find that helpful, and I hope you enjoy the upcoming interview with Taru Clavel. Hi, Taru, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast.
1: So nice to speak with you. Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. I mean, I'm really glad to speak to you today. You have such an interesting and unusual, a varied background. You've raised three kids in Shanghai, Tokyo, and in Palo Alto in the US. So you you, you have that personal experience of varied cultures, and you bring that to your work in, in education, consulting, and reform. I wonder if you could tell people a little bit about, maybe just from the personal side, what you've learned from raising kids around the world.
1: Sure. I will add that I started off actually in New York and then went to Hong Kong for four years. <laughs> Let's see, what did I, the, every education system really is very different based on its history and culture. What I think is most important is that we learn from one another. And although we cannot necessarily adopt an entire education system, hook, line and sinker from one country to another, there are so many variables that we can really examine and, and try to, to see if we can implement in some part in another country.
0: Can you give us some concrete examples for those of us like me who've only been educated and taught, you know, in, in, in one country and actually for me, you know, one small part of, of the U.S.?
1: Absolutely. The first thing that comes to mind would be the notion of community that I felt was ever present when I was raising my kids in Japan. Mm -hmm. And in particular in Tokyo. And I felt like when I came to the United States, I really understood the practice of helicopter parenting, where parents felt like their children weren't safe. And of course, there are different gun control laws here compared to Japan. But my children at the age of six were already walking around the streets of Tokyo on their own and getting Mm -hmm. to all their activities on their own, even taking public transportation from Tokyo to Osaka on the bullet train which is an over a three-hour train ride on their own, I feel like if we worked more together as a community, maybe a model that we had a generation or two ago in the United States where we are looking out for one another is a more supportive intergenerational community. The whole notion of it takes a village. We could really benefit and learn from the Japanese model here in the U.S yeah
0: I wonder if you could just speak to those parents in the u s who hear that you know a six year old would take a train on their own for three hours and can only feel fear or you know yes. wonder how can a child do that and be safe? I've heard a little bit about how it works in japan, and from what you're saying, it's not just that it's safer so that the children aren't at risk of being attacked. There's something else going on too, which is a degree of social support can you tell us co- concretely what that
1: looks like absolutely so in japan it's kind of this accepted practice that parents have to raise their children to be relatively autonomous by the time they're 6 so it's a goal so you know that you're trying to give them as much independence as possible so in the household for example we were told as preschool parents or parents of preschoolers have your child prepare for school as much as possible. So have them get their bags ready, have them help with making the lunch. If they have clothes that they have to wear for school, have them help with the laundry. And if they forgot something, then they forgot something and they learn from that lesson. I have an example. When we came back to the United States uh, in the summers, which, which we did to see family, my son, I believe he was about four years old, went to summer camp. And I received a phone call sometime in the later morning from his camp counselor saying, you know, Charles forgot his swimsuit. And I said, Oh, well, that's too bad. Is there maybe another pair that he could borrow from the lost and found? The counselor was pretty aghast and said, <laughs> No. Well, why don't you bring why don't you bring a, a, a swim trunk for him? And I said, That's no, okay, he'll sit out today. And it only recently dawned on me that it was my responsibility from the perspective of the counselor to bring the swim trunk because she assumed I was the one who would forgotten it. Whereas in my household, because I had been socialized to parent in Japan, Charles was responsible because he's the one who forgot to put the swim trunk. So in my mind, it's a lesson learned. He won't forget the next time. Yeah,
0: it's a really interesting lesson because this works in Japan. It sounds like kids are very responsible by the time they're six. You hear from parents here a lot. I think parents here would say, oh, it's just not possible. They might think it's not biologically possible for a child of that age to reach that level of responsibility. But clearly, biologically, it's not that there's a biological difference in Japan that allows kids to reach that level of responsibility. It's cultural and it can be learned, uh, which means that that belief that it's impossible somehow just because of age is just not true.
1: I think that's a really, really good point because I wouldn't advocate sending your child suddenly in a system in the outside world in the U.S. where other families, parents, crossing guards, teachers are not, and other students, frankly, aren't necessarily looking out for each Mm -hmm. other. So I don't think that that's something that we can adopt entirely. But within the household, we really can give our children a lot more responsibilities than we think.
0: I wonder if we can talk a bit about how this may relate to technology. Are there ways in which you saw this come up in relation to teaching kids in Japan how to use tech? I mean, I know Japan is a very tech-heavy country. I know young people and teenagers use smartphones and, and other technology really extensively. Were there any ways, though, in which there was a difference in Japan? or in any of the other countries you've lived in that you've been able to draw on and how you raise your own kids or try to encourage parents, teachers to teach kids here in the U.S.?
1: Well, that's a great question. And, you know, in Shanghai, when my children were in school there, my oldest, who was in first and second grade at a local public school, he didn't have flushing toilets and there was no heat or air conditioning. So he basically wore a snowsuit Mm -hmm. to school and when I asked, because I also did college consulting, when I asked one of my high school students, so you don't have any technology in your classroom, do you? He was quite offended and said, of course we do. We have a light switch and we have plugs in the walls. <laughs> and I meant, no, 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 I, you know, the whole one-to-one program. And he didn't understand what I was talking about. In Japan, I would say similarly, there's very little actual laptop or iPad or any computer usage in the classrooms. When you mentioned that there's a lot of technology usage, it's really outside of the classroom that the students may have smartphones or other kinds of gadgetry. And it's very, very heavily monitored when it's inside the schools. So when we came back to the United States in 2016, yes, I was in the middle of Silicon Valley. We were in Palo Alto. There was so much technology in the classroom that I felt was completely unmonitored that it was, it was, it was a huge cultural shock for me.
0: So how is technology then introduced to children in the schools in, in the other countries you've lived in? Is it just done at a later age? Or are there certain ways in which it's introduced maybe more consciously, or maybe, maybe less consciously? I don't know. I'm just curious about the differences.
1: Education reforms only take, take place every five to 10 years in Japan and in China. So every educational reform or pedagogical change is really, really well thought out for years in advance. So it's not, oh, I'm a teacher and this is the way it's done in the United States. It's, I found a great app last night. I found a great worksheet online. I'm going to use it in the classroom tomorrow. That would pretty much Mm -hmm. never happen in Japan or in China. So there is, there is significant oversight and how it's introduced to children is really more from home In the, in the sense that they're using smartphones or computers at home in the classrooms when, and if it is even introduced in elementary school, it really is one iPad for every few students. And it's used very, very sparingly, at least now. And I do make mention of this in my book where they are looking at implementing technological curricular innovations in the classrooms, but it will be very slow going and very, very well-considered before it's implemented.
0: Yeah, I'd like to talk about that. Uh, You mentioned your your upcoming book, World Class. I love the title, (laughs) which is the outcome uh, of your experience around the world, again, both as a parent and as someone uh, working on educational consulting and design and reform you know, I know one of the things that you mention in the book is this difference between other countries that you've been in, where there is more, uh, let's call it, centralized design across the board in the education system, versus in the U.S., where it's more distributed, let's say, and you know, less general oversight, or maybe could consider it lack of government governance of the educational system as a whole. I'll take a devil's advocate position. Here's the general U.S. perspective on not just education, you know, the economy in general. Distributing control, right, to states and local governments and counties is a good thing. It encourages innovation and entrepreneurship and experimentation and then lets the good and the bad be found out through that kind of experimentation and then eventually bubble up to the top where it can become a standard that's kind of a U.S. philosophy This just relates to general rugged individualism in the U.S., right? Let's let's let people and communities figure things out on their own without a lot of top-down design, and then let eventual top-down designs come from that experience rather than the other way around. You know, so I wonder if you could talk about some of the pros and cons, if you do see pros to that more general U.S. philosophy, But uh, I think I'd be more curious to know maybe what are some of the downsides of it for our listeners here in the US and things we could learn from other countries.
1: Well, I really, really love this question because it really gets to the heart of my shock when I return to the US. And actually, one of the chapters, one of the last chapters of my book is titled Education in a Nation where Capitalism, Individuality, and Freedom Prevail. And this whole notion of states' rights versus federal is probably the most pressing issue of our time when it relates to education. I spent time in D.C. last year while I was doing research for this book, and I met with many congressmen, senators, and for the most part, they all said, listen, there's very little we can do about the education system in our country because the education model is such that the Department of Education came to be as an afterthought because states has rights and all of our systems, all of our education, our schools, rather, were localized and meant to serve their local communities. So right now, the education funding model in the United States is pretty much only 10% of funding comes from the federal government. And then the, the remaining is split between the state and the district. So this really leads to an equity problem because right now, as most people would know, our schools are funded by our tax system, our property mm-hmm. taxes. So when you have a bunch of affluent people living in a community they are most likely going to have the extra money to provide whatever additional sources their children need from tutors to extracurriculars, to sports, to travel during holidays, to summer camps. You have to compare that to those students who are very socioeconomically disadvantaged, who have likely parents who are working more than one job. Maybe they do not speak English at home and a whole host of other issues. So it's really we have an equity problem in this country that we really have to fix and because of that whole states rights federal government funding model we have to think of a better way and in both japan and in china they have more centralized systems and although china is admittedly a decentralized education system meaning that the the central government does not mandate what goes on in every single school throughout the country education is such a priority in that country that even during president xi jinping's State of the Union address, he mentioned education as a priority dozens of times. In Japan, you have a centralized education model where almost literally every child in every school at the same grade level is learning the exact same content. So there are no holes. And I call that model, when I compare to the US model, I think of the US system as the great Swiss cheese of education (laughs) because there's so much left up to the the child, the classroom, the different students. We have such a diverse student body in this country. It depends on the year. It depends on the taxation, the administrators that year, the teacher turnover. There's so many variables that the schools that my children attended did not have to experience while we were in Asia. Two other things that came up earlier in your question, I felt like there was this notion of individuality and freedom. And right now, because the tech companies have so much power right now and our schools are so underfunded for the most part for the mandates that they're given, this whole notion of personalized learning comes up. And I was in countries where you learn the content and very little was personalized. So I come back here and what is personalized learning? I think a lot of parents and even educators are confused by that. Certainly legislators are because suddenly personalized learning has become synonymous with technology. And if you sit in front of a computer, an algorithm will dictate what the child should learn, which is very scary to me because then it replaces that human interaction and that teacher expertise that can be employed to really understand what each child needs. And that does touch on that corporate influence that you had mentioned earlier in your question regarding whose interests are being met. Because I really felt that in Silicon Valley, when you have $200 Chromebooks that are being provided by Google, and you have teachers that are buying their own school supplies every year, and then you have the Apple teacher of the year, teachers will look for outside sources to supplement the educational tools that are in are in the classrooms. So it's a very complicated question.
0: Uh, there's so much in what you just said to to pick up on one point related to technology use in particular that i'm curious about is just the challenge of how you deal with reforming education in the face of technology that develops so rapidly you know so i can see the benefit of having a very conscious slow-moving process in the way you described in Japan, for example, of re how kids are taught over a period of several years and not doing reforms frequently, including not introducing new technology just willy-nilly as it comes along. On the other hand, you know, I can see the the downside of the, there being a lag between what kids are being exposed to in the outside world and what they're getting in the classroom, and also some of the benefits they could get potentially from newer technology, them being stuck, so to speak, if, if there's a judgment attached to that, with older uh, modes of teaching. Could you talk a little bit, maybe, to that tension if you even see it that way?
1: I think that's a very fair point, and I'm asked about it often. I probably would feel that way if I hadn't seen classrooms, and I guess I should say students, thrive in Shanghai and Tokyo that didn't have a lick of technology in their classrooms. In Japan, they have a near 100% literacy rate, and Japanese is considered one of the most complicated languages to speak in the world. And to me, I mean, I can make a joke about myself, which is that when I finally did get a smartphone, and I was definitely a late adopter, when I went to the Apple store and I took my classes, I think everybody in the class with me was 80 or eighty years old or over. And I, I bring up that story because these gadgets are very easy to learn. And I think there's this belief and I think a misconception amongst adults and parents in particular and teachers that we have to get these students on these devices as soon as possible because they are the wave of the future. They can't be behind. But even if you look at the OECD research on this, students who have more technology actually exhibit lower learning outcomes. So I really think, you know, you you go to any shopping center or restaurant, right? You're going to see, unfortunately, in my opinion, tables of families or a parent and a child where sometimes as young as six months old, you'll see a six, six month old on a smartphone. So these are not difficult things to learn. So I, I would push back on that. When you ask me, are there wonderful things about technology? Absolutely. There's no way I could be doing my job without technology. And there is collaboration, access to information. And to a certain degree, you can have personalized learning. I just think that it has to be done in a very, like your podcast is titled, a very mindful way. And right now we're so eager to be on this innovative, let's let's put the next best and greatest innovation into our classrooms at the expense of our children because we don't have actual longitudinal academic research that shows this stuff is good for our kids. In fact, if you look at the American Academy of Pediatrics and you look at their guidelines, there are all kinds of, of, of guidelines now that show this technology actually stunts interpersonal communication, cognitive development, focus, and discipline. There's bullying and social-emotional problems and privacy implications. There's obesity, sleep pattern, physical health problems. And a lot of it relates to the quality of content that children are exposed to, the quality of the parent oversight. And maybe most important is how is technology promoting or interfering with that vital parent child time and communication. Because there have been countless studies that show that human interaction between the ages of zero and three can determine your academic success and even financial success for a lifetime. So if you're putting your little kids in front of these gadgets that are two dimensional, that are showing three dimensional objects and they're not having that that literally I said something that may have upset someone or those facial expressions and understanding how to express themselves. Re, I, I'm I'm actually fearful about what this next generation is going to understand as being human, human interaction.
0: Yeah. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that, you know, uh, this problem of the introduction of technology to children so so young uh, having an impact on how parents interact with and and raise their kids and is bring them into the world. you've just given a few examples, but uh, uh, you know talk a little bit more about it. I think when I hear people talk about technology and and raising kids, it's focused mostly on. Uh, How do I get the technology to them and teach them to use it in the way you said, so that they're ready and that they don't, quote, fall behind? You're talking about a different dimension, which is just the impact it has on on how parents and their children from birth, I mean, as early as uh, infancy, interact with each other and and the impact it has on development.
1: Absolutely. I would say, rather than thinking that if you don't put your child on – some kind of technological gadget, you don't fall behind. You actually move ahead. So, nothing is more important than looking at your child, speaking to the child, using lots of vocabulary, reading to the child. When you read the book, you know, the parents are actually given lessons on how to read books to children. And you don't just read the book word for word and turn the page. You're supposed to have discussions with the child about what they see, how do they feel about it. What's going on? What's the hero or heroine doing? Where are they going? And ask lots of questions, even when the child can't reply because they are soaking up absolutely everything. I mean, these are these are times in these in these children's lives when they are absolute sponges and they haven't dealt with any blowback from society telling them the rules of what to do and not to do. You watch a child running around a library. It's one of the most beautiful things, like a 18 month old toddling around and, and pulling out books and opening them up and looking at pictures. It's to me, it's pure joy. And there's so much information communicating with other humans and within the pages of a book. And we're really taking that away from children, I feel like, in this generation.
0: Yeah, it's, I, I really appreciate the point. I think a lot of people think that, oh, uh, reading something on a screen. Versus reading something in a book, it's just substituting kind of one medium for another. You're saying it's actually changing how parents interact with their children around the reading experience. It's not just substituting one medium for another.
1: Absolutely. And I would add to that there's a retention issue because we can all remember holding a book and turning the pages and the smell and the feel and the chronology. And it's And it's really easy. Even as an adult, I can say, I lose my place in a book when I'm reading it or an article when I'm reading it or scrolling it. And when you're in a book, you know you feel when you're on page three versus that sense of accomplishment when you've made it to page 100 or 200. Or I can think about the time I read David Copperfield when I was right before ninth grade, the summer of ninth grade, and I was determined to read this thick book. And to this day, it gives me such a sense of accomplishment knowing I read every page of that, at the time it was over a thousand pages long book. And it sticks in your memory and you have more of an emotional response to the written word on a page when you're turning the page. And oftentimes I think a lot of people, at least in my generation, felt accomplished when you looked at a wall of books and you said, I read every page in every one of those books.
0: Yeah. I've often thought about the social experience of going to someone's house and seeing their books on the wall, right? That's conveying a message to me about who they are. And the same thing if someone would come to my house and see my books, it conveys something about who I am and often lead to conversations, people asking questions, oh, what is this book? What did you think of it? And then learning something about who the other person is, as a result of seeing who, what their library is, there's a whole set of experiences that occur around a physical library that don't occur when everything you're reading is in your Kindle <laughs> that no one can see.
1: That's such a good point. I was, just this past July 4th weekend, I was in my mom's home and I went to the basement and there are all these school books from when I was growing up. And it's just, I'm flooded with memories it's a really good point you bring up. And also, I think this question of your household values is very important. When you go into somebody's home, or why don't we put it this way, when you are a child and every day you're coming into your home and you have books everywhere, what kind of message are you showing your children? That reading is really important. And there's, again, many studies that show that a child who reads all the time advances in so many aspects of their lives, much more than, than people who don't pick up a book and read all the time. So if you're showing your, your children, we have books on all different topics, different genres, and it's, it's good to, we have a rule in our home. You don't go anywhere without a book. So you don't say you're bored, pick up your book, read your book. If you're in a car, you're tired, read a book. You can't go to sleep, read a book. You're on vacation, take a book. It's, one of the best uh, emails or messages I can get from my children when they're away at summer camp is, Mama, please send me more books.
0: <laughs> so this is great. I mean, we, we've zoomed down from the national level down to the individual parent-child relationship. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what teachers can do or what could be done at the school or school district level, uh, you know, somewhat in between the national and the family level here, uh, based on, on everything that you've
1: learned. Well, I I think that's another great question. I think there's so many people involved in introducing technology to our children's lives. That includes, from the top down, the administrator to the teacher, the parent, and the student. And right now, there seems to be a lack of transparency on what the policies are for tech usage. So how much technology is used in the classroom and for what purpose? And also, what kind of homework is given that requires technology? what platforms, how are messages communicated between teachers and parents, and how is technology used as a collaborative tool between all the different parties. And it could be between administrators and teachers, teachers and teachers. And what is the most effective? Something that also happens is a lot of these technology companies will come in and say, here's the equipment, here is the app. But what is actually the life cycle of that? Because what if it's free for the first year and then the second year, it costs a certain amount per student. And then what happens? Because maybe the students and the teacher have gotten used to using that. And then suddenly they need to find a new one. And that takes time, adopting new tools. I say, follow the money. It's all, I say, do an investigation. Find out where the money is coming from to buy the apps or the equipment. Who is pushing that reform? Does it come from, let's say there is every student succeeds act is, is a federal mandate coming now. And there are parts of it that require personalized learning and usage of tech. I would want to find out where is that coming from? Is it a tech company that is lobbying some Congress people and saying put it in ESSA? Because that's the black box that is our legislative system that I'd like to break open. And the more parents, administrators, teachers get on board with asking those questions, I think the better for our children.
0: For people who aren't aware of this, you know, maybe people haven't, parents haven't asked this question. I mean, can you tell us specifically what your concern is about where the money is coming from in specific situations? And you don't have to name names per se, but, you know, what, what is your concern about that and the influence it has on the educational experience?
1: I want to know that our children are coming first, that there is research showing that this is actually going to benefit our children. And right now, a lot of the technology companies are producing white papers. So they're funding their own research saying this is going to help with math learning. It's going to help with reading earlier or phonics. And the reality is we actually don't know if this is true. We don't know. And we don't know the life cycle. So sure, the the tech company can come in and say, oh, Without naming names, um, many come to mind, but this is going to change how your children, how your students behave in the classroom. They are going to have a scoring of their behavior, a daily score, a scorekeeper. You know, it's basically an online version of the star chart. But what does that actually mean? It means who is going to be on their phone or computer throughout the day and not interacting with your students. It's the teacher. So how does that cut into the face-to-face interpersonal teacher-to-child communication? So these are things that have to be investigated that aren't, and they really benefit the bottom line of the tech company, when I would argue that it really hurts the child who needs that dedicated teacher time. I Last year, when I toured many, many schools across the country, I cannot think of a single school that I went to that did not have some kind of a tech problem That I witnessed firsthand in the classroom. I can tell you there was a classroom I went to in upstate New York. And in this classroom, one of the kids couldn't get onto the internet. So there was 15 minutes spent on this one child's computer trying to get him online. There was one school where I felt like every high school student was playing Fortnite and the principal just went around saying, do this, do that, get off, get off. It was, it felt more like a police state went to another school that was highly underfunded that didn't have textbooks for all the children. So all the students were required to do the reading on their smartphones. Now think about how distracting that would be if you're supposed to be reading content on, let's say the US Civil War. And at the same time, you're listening to rap music and you are texting and chatting with your friends on Snapchat. You can't do that if you have a physical textbook.
0: These are all great points. And I think that last one is another great example of how current technology is not just a different medium. It's not just the equivalent of taking text from a textbook and putting it on a screen. Because of the ability to multitask and uh, we've talked a million times on this podcast about the distractions of notifications and the ability to switch from one app to another and send messages, it's a radically different experience, actually. Even if you are in the moment reading something on the screen, it's still very different from reading something on a page. I mean, one thing that that I do, I'm of the age where I learned to read and write before computers of any kind, you know, at least that I had access to. I'm still able to, and I still often choose, not just read, but write on paper. There are times when I want to brainstorm or be uh, undistracted and focused and get my ideas out that I write them down on a piece of paper. And, you know, I I, one, I wonder how many young people are getting that, Experience or having even the basic skill to in later in life be able to make that kind of a choice about in what situation should I use technology, in what situation shouldn't I, or which type of technology should I use at the moment based on what I want to do instead of technology just always being the default because it's all they've ever known.
1: I love that point. I really do. And it's, I do worry that these adolescents, especially their minds aren't fully developed to be able to necessarily make these right decisions. So when they use what media is very important. I mean, this relates to retention of content. I mean, when I was growing up, the whole, the the only issue I felt like I had was, well, if you cram, you're not going to retain the information, which is definitely true. But now if you learn all your content online, it's similar. You're not going to retain, there are many studies that show you're not going to retain that information and it's really not going to go into your long-term memory. So that retention, that, that paper, that pen to paper sensation actually puts it into your memory for longer as well. And it's that repetition and that writing, it's engaging the senses. It's something that I really wish all students had the ability to do, but I feel unfortunately it's, it's something that is slipping away.
0: I wonder, you know, if we can then take a, take a step back again to let people know for themselves in their own families, or if they are teachers or administrators. You know, what what are one or two key learnings that you've had from from your very varied experience around the world that you could convey to them? If there was just you know, one or two simple things. That, that you feel are are most important that you think people may not have been exposed to from a different culture that's of value?
1: I would say the first thing that comes to mind is is far more general. And I wish that this country would prioritize education across the board. I think most people would agree that we have an education system that is in deep need of reform, but you have this equity problem where you have people with a lot of power and funding Pretty well off in terms of the educational choices and decisions that they've made for their children. Whereas the majority, the vast majority of children in this country are not getting a good education. So if there's something I would want to share with everybody, it's we have an equity problem in this country and we really have to fight it across the board. So this means really considering where our tax dollars are being spent. It means would you consider putting your child into the local public school? does your heavily funded school really require the $10 million football stadium? Or can the money be spent elsewhere or donated? Can you do a brother-sister type program with an underfunded school? That would be the top area that I would really want listeners to take away. Another larger area is, I feel like although the countries I Lived in did not have compulsory universal pre K. I do believe it is necessary in this country. The blowback that I get a lot when I talk about comparative international models is that, well, we're just not that country. We're not that country because we're so diverse. And I would say, yes, because we are so diverse, we really need to have universal compulsory, meaning required. Preschool, because right, right, right now it's happening. And again, I went to schools where I would go to kindergarten classrooms. Some students had never seen the alphabet, never opened a book. I went to first grade classrooms where children still could not figure out how to use scissors. Meanwhile, in the same classrooms, you may have some kids who are reading well above grade level. And when you help those who are struggling to meet higher learning expectations, you elevate the learning expectations of everybody in that classroom. So, To me, it's getting literal children far more prepared for primary school than we're doing right now. Something that I observed in Japan that I thought was a beautiful model was how in tune the teachers were with the parents. And there was a journal that went back and forth between the parents and the teachers. So you could write something about my child had difficulty with the homework last night, or it could be my child doesn't feel that well today, or In PE class, you know, he didn't seem to do that well jumping rope. It could be literally anything. It could be he doesn't really like this special egg rice that's being made once a month. That relationship, and I would say it's a triangulated relationship between the parent, the student, and the teacher is so important and it has to be well balanced. I found that when I came back to the United States, there was so much finger pointing and if you go on Twitter, you can see teachers blaming parents and parents blaming teachers. And if we don't work together and not understand in a more empathic way the struggles that we're all having, we're actually hurting that third party, which is the child. So I would love for all of us to get together and really understand that we are all on the same page and trying to help our children. And the best way to do it is to be on the same team.
0: Oh, that's a great. That's a great message to end with. You know. Rebuilding a community and the value of community uh, between parents and teachers all for the benefit of children. I wonder if you could uh, let people know uh, where they can find out more about you, find out about your upcoming book, how to pre-order it, and how to just stay up to date with you generally.
1: I appreciate that. So My book is set to be released by Simon & Schuster Imprint Atria on September 3rd. It's called World Class, and you can find it on Amazon. You can type my name, Tarouk Lavelle, or World Class, and it should pop up. I would love for everybody to pre-order it. I'm actually recording the audio version of the book in the next few weeks, so please feel free to continue to hear my voice if you like it. It should be uh, quite animated. My book is roughly, I would say 40% memoir, 30% research and 30% takeaway. So I'm quite honest about my parenting mistakes and how my learning was, was, everything was very counterintuitive. I went in with a Western kind of understanding of what education was. And I was kind of flipped 180 when it came to topics, including technology and education governance, the meaning of mastery, parent involvement, teacher training, what globalization meant. And that's coming from someone who grew up in a culturally Japanese home because my mother is a first generation Japanese immigrant to this country. But I was still completely floored by what I learned, putting my own children into the education systems of Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Tokyo. So please visit me on my website www.taruklavell.com. That's T-E-R-U-C-L-A-V-E-L. And I would love for you to reach out to me via social media. I am on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And I have a YouTube channel with some videos. So yes, please, please stay in touch.
0: That's great. Well, thanks so much, Taru, for being on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. I really, really enjoyed speaking with you.
1: I love speaking with you, Robert. Thank you so much for having me. Bye now. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks so much for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Taru Clavel, author, speaker, and super global mom. You can find out more about Taru's work and upcoming book at taruclavel.com. That's T-E-R-U-C-L-A-V-E-L.com. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe, Rate and review and share the episode with your friends. And don't forget to also check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. You'll also be able to find out about our Tap Into Mindfulness course for helping you to take back control of your smartphone at tapintomindfulness.com. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with psychotherapist and digital wellness parenting coach, Teodora Pavkovich.